Well, we'll come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, turn this morning to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, beginning at verse 1. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 744. And when you found that, would you stand together with me, and I'll read this passage. Luke writes this, One day as he was teaching, this is Jesus, teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it came from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may it never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked them, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time together in his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to come now and be present with us as we look at your word once again. We are humbled that you would draw us here and speak to us in this way. I believe that each person you brought here this morning, you have something that you want to speak to us through this parable, through this story of your kingdom. Trusting that even as you've worked in my heart, you will work in the hearts of each person here. Because you tell us, when you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. If uh, you're like me, and the 80s were a part of your growing up years, or if you're just part of that generation that strangely reveres the 80s, as though there was like more than five things worth remembering from that decade, 
Either way, you'll probably be familiar with a, a well-known song, 1989, by an artist named Vanilla Ice, where he invited us to stop, to collaborate and listen. Probably know the song. But if your musical taste did not extend beyond top 40 of that day, what you might not know is that that musical hook that he used in that, dum 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 you know this? Okay, that hook actually came from a 1981 song written by David Bowie and Queen called Under Pressure. So, when those who held the rights to that 1981 song came to Vanilla Ice and, and, and asked him, like, what, 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 what are you doing here? You're clearly using something that doesn't belong to you. When they came to him, at first he was unwilling to admit that he had, had, had okay, sampled, if you want to call it that, stolen their property, was using it as his own, and it was only actually after like strong legal pressure, public kind of shaming and scorn, he was willing to finally acknowledge that this, in fact, was their property and had to pay some huge undisclosed fine. We see the same kind of uh, situations happening today. Artists like Pharrell Williams, uh, Bruno Mars have similar court cases they're going through. In, in each case, the issue being taking ownership of, uh, using as your own something that belongs to someone else. We're continuing this series this morning, looking through the parables of Jesus called Stories of the Kingdom. And if you haven't been with us, what we've seen already is that Jesus isn't just telling a bunch of stories to entertain people. Okay? That Jesus is not some sort of ancient Near Eastern Stuart McLean. He, he is telling these stories with intent. There, there is a purpose behind the stories, a meaning that needs to be drawn out from them. And he's teaching that through the, the, the method of stories. Teaching us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Teaching us about what is valued in his kingdom, as well as about what is despised there. And in our passage today, often referred to as the parable of the talents, very much like what we saw in these stories I just talked about of copyright infringement, Jesus' story here in Luke 20 is going to talk about a kind of copyright infringement on a cosmic scale. Copyright infringement on a cosmic scale, where, where basically we seek to claim ownership, where we use and take control of things that belong to God and use them as our own, namely things like the world we live in and ultimately even the lives that we live here, those that all belongs to God. It's His. And yet whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, is likely not a person in here who doesn't hear that statement and feel an immediate kind of resistance to it at some level. Some of us, a very strong resistance to that. No way. Why do we feel that way? Well, because doesn't almost every voice that you hear today and almost every moment of the day, including your own voice, scream the exact opposite message? Doesn't, it, doesn't every voice we hear tell us, hey, you need to stand up for your rights, for your independence, for your freedom, for, for your happiness, and you need to do all you can to guard against someone who would seek to take that from you? It can even make us in this sort of collective mass of, of of ownership that we seek to claim for ourselves, it can make us even respond to beautiful passages like Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and, and everything in it, uh, the world and all who live there, and it can make those passages sound like an insult, make it sound like an assault on us somehow. There are 
although there are mountains of evidence, biblical and otherwise, that prove God's ownership of all these things, and in our better moments we know that's true, the default position of the human heart is still to resist the claims of God on his creation and to guard the illusion of our ownership at all costs. But although God is gracious, he is incredibly patient with us in our resistance, infinitely more patient than anyone else would be in similar circumstances. What we see in our passage today is that at some point, God will return to settle accounts with us, decisively laying claim to all that is his. So, in order to get our minds around what Jesus is trying to show us here today, I want to look at this passage in three ways with you. And I'm going to gather our thoughts around those three ways, around the three main players in this parable as they relate to the tenants. Okay, so we'll look at, first of all, the tenants and the owner. Then we'll look at the tenants and the messengers. And then finally, we'll look at the tenants and the son. Okay, those three things, the tenants and the owner, the messengers and the son. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again? Open them again to this passage, Luke chapter 20. Follow along with me as we look at this next story of the kingdom. So let's look, first of all, at the tenants and the owner. The tenants and the owner. Now, I don't know if you currently have a dog in your home or maybe if you grew up with a dog, but... I had a dog, beautiful dog, growing up that I, I loved and played together all the time. I remember specifically when we would put the dog out in the backyard because she was pretty good at getting away. We would tie her collar to this long rope, and then we would attach the other end of the collar to some sort of solid object, a picnic table, swing set, whatever, so that she couldn't get away. She could explore pretty freely, but she couldn't get away. Now, it didn't always begin this way, but without fail, she'd be going around, you know, sniffing things and barking at stuff and whatever, just exploring the backyard, but then something would happen. She would see the squirrel, uh, she would see another dog walking by, uh, kids, we would come out with any kind of food, and she would immediately sprint towards it, whatever it was. But as she's running at full speed, of course, she's tied up, so eventually what happens is she's like, yanked back by her collar, almost flipping over backwards sometimes. She's running so fast, decisively reminding her she does not have freedom to just go wherever she wants. She's got limitations. I don't know if, if this was just my dog, but she would not learn from that. She would run back a few yards and try it again and try it again, just continually flipping out until finally she would just go to the end of the rope and be like on her hind legs, straining, like choking herself half to death, straining against these restraints, Barking and just hoping that anyone will come and set her free so that she can have free reign to run where she wants, to chase after whatever she saw. Now, why was she doing that? What, what, what was going on in her mind? I think very simply, isn't it that she didn't, she didn't want there to be a leash attached to her? She didn't want these limitations placed upon her freedom. And even if she did know, you know, at some kind of subconscious, cognitive doggy level, that she was tied up, she still wanted to like push that thought out of her mind. Just pretend in her own mind, oh no, I'm free, look, I can go anywhere I want. Just kind of push that idea of her mind, no, there aren't any restraints on me, I can go wherever I want, until she was decisively reminded that wasn't the case. I believe that's very much a part of what Jesus is trying to show us in this parable this morning. Because, well, we're going to see there's limitations. 
Now, just like we saw last week, the, the context surrounding this passage is incredibly important for us understanding the meaning of it. One of the clearest clues of that we see right at the beginning of verse 9. If you look there, Luke says, He, that is Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. So, so if the reason Jesus is telling this parable at all is because he's going on, he's continuing with some sort of teaching about whatever he was talking about, I'd say it's pretty important that we know what it was he was talking about before, what it was he was doing. And if you remember what we read there in those first eight verses of Luke 20, which precede the story itself, Jesus is there preaching, teaching the gospel in the temple courts, and this big gang of religious leaders comes up to Jesus, and they ask him this question, verse 2. They say, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, maybe you'd want to ask, okay, what, what do they mean by the things? What, what things is Jesus doing? Isn't he just teaching? Why would they want him to stop that? And the answer, if you look just before our passage, is that a few things have just happened. First of all, Jesus has just completed his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is where he's riding in on the donkey. People are putting down palm branches, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. This is one of the first times, actually the first time, Jesus has ever allowed people to publicly worship him as the Messiah. And then, even more recently, Jesus has come into these very temple courts where he's teaching now, and he's gone all Wreck-It Ralph on, on the, the, the farmer's market, the gift shop, whatever is going on here in the temple courts, flipping over tables, driving out all these money changers, quoting the prophets, saying, my temple shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, which, understandably, religious leaders didn't like that, right? They didn't want him doing this. They took it as a direct challenge to how they'd set up the temple, how they'd set up temple worship. And as the leaders reached the end of their leash, if we can call it that, and they're violently jerked back by Jesus who's clearing out the temple this way, <clears throat> they ask him, they come directly to him, they're basically saying, what gives? What's with this leash thing here? What, what, who gives you the authority to tell us how we set up our temple? You can't come in here and change things like that. And in response, if you look at verses 3 and 4 now, if I can summarize this, Jesus basically says, I'll tell you what, if you really want to know the answer to your question, here it is. Just tell me John's baptism. And by baptism, he means John's ministry as a whole. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Now, Jesus knows they're not going to answer the question because the implications of the answer are too pressing on their need to maintain their sense of authority and control. But he asks them all the same. And it's interesting to note, if you look at verse 5 and 6, that their whole discussion, when Jesus asks them the question, they're not even interested in the truth of the answer. All they care about is just what are the potential consequences of whichever way they answer. Well, what are they going to say if we do this? They don't even seem to just want to give him what the answer is. And rather than risk either answer, they give Jesus sort of a, a, a safe political non-answer. You know, they're kind of like, you know, that's a great question, Jesus. Thanks for asking that. You know, the issues are really quite complex. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different opinions about that, so I think it's impossible to know, really. It's possible to say. We, we don't really know. And Jesus' response in verse 8, their non-answer is also to say nothing more himself. But it's important to say it's nothing more. Okay? It's not that Jesus is playing some kind of childish game with them. Oh, you didn't invite me to your birthday party? I'm not going to go to yours. That's not what he's doing. 
He, he, the, the point is, he's already answered their question. He's already answered their question by answering that question, asking that question. How? Well, and this is incredibly significant to, to the story that Jesus tells next. Because John the Baptist, think about his ministry. If you know this story of John the Baptist, what are some of the two key events that take place in John's ministry? One of them is the clear public identification of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is coming up. He points right at him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus' baptism. Right after that, he baptizes Jesus. This is an event many people would have heard about. Uh, The heavens open up, right? Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. Voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. That's all included in John's baptism, John's ministry. Now that in itself would have been more than enough to state, right? He just makes reference to that. It should have included, they should have said, oh yeah, okay. That's where you get the authority. But just to help drive home the point, this is where Jesus goes on now to tell this parable of the tenants in the vineyard. Now we don't have time to get into all the the history and backstory uh, uh, as much as I might love that. It's important to know at least that from Isaiah 5 in the Old Testament going forward, a vineyard. When Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, that was a commonly understood, regularly reoccurring reference, kind of metaphor, for the people of Israel, for God's people. We always talk about a vineyard as representing the people of Israel. And a Jewish audience would have easily picked up on that, even if you and I don't get to that right away. So the minute Jesus starts talking in verse 9 there about a vineyard, the audience that he was speaking to, they got, and we need to get, that Jesus is talking about God's people, the people of Israel. Look at verse 9 again. He says, A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. Now already do you see that in saying this man, whoever he was, he was the one that planted the vineyard, saying it's undoubtedly he's planting a vineyard on land that belongs to him. And then mentioning that the ones living there, the ones working on that property were just renters. Already we can see that Jesus is creating a hierarchy of who's in charge and who's in authority, right? In fact, we can just distill Jesus' teaching from the parable as a whole. And even even verse 9 here, all, all down to one kind of simple point, it's this. He's trying to teach them through this parable. There is one who has authority over the vineyard. There is one who has authority over God's people, including those who've been put in positions of leadership there. Why? Because he's the owner. He has authority because he's the owner, both of the land as well as the people. That's a big part about what Jesus is trying to teach them in this parable, trying to highlight for them. But the problem for the religious leaders then, it's the same problem you and I have today, namely, We don't want there to be an owner. We don't want that. We don't want there to be limitations on our freedom at all. We don't want a a, a rope attached to our collar. We don't like it, and we resist even the knowledge of that. Or even if there is an owner. Okay, maybe there is an owner kind of in the back recesses of our mind. We know, okay, yeah, there's an owner. Even if that's the case, we'd like him to stay on vacation. Thanks very much. Okay, don't, don't show up here, start changing stuff around, making demands on us. Who do you think you are? Where do you get authority to do that? We don't like it because if there's an owner, that means that nothing we have ultimately belongs to us. 
The owner, if he is the owner, he has every right to come in, to move things around, to make demands, to settle accounts whenever he wants, whatever he pleases, because it's his. It's all his, and we are merely the tenants. We are merely the stewards of those things. And actually, this was the mistaken belief of the religious leaders underneath their question that they asked Jesus there in verse 2. They'd been running this show for so long. This is how we set up the worship. This is how we set up the temple. We like it this way. We like that there. That, that they were, had forgotten the fact they were not the owners of God's house. They were simply the tenants. They were simply those who had been called to do the work of cultivation in God's vineyard. That's all they were. And many times, even imperceptibly, the very same thing happens to us in our own hearts and minds today, doesn't it? We lose sight of the fact that all that we have, everything that we have, they're all the good gifts of God to us. We forget that. We forget that we are merely the stewards and the the tenants. And then, when, when we forget that that's the case, we can begin to describe those things Uh, Instead, with words like, this is my house, my car, my family, my spouse, my kids, my whatever it is. We describe it with those words. Seeing ourselves as the owners of those things now, we, we strongly, we violently resist anyone who would dare to challenge our ownership or our authority over those things, even God himself. Who are you? Who gives you the authority to come in and take this money? I earned this money. It's mine. I worked that job. It's mine. Don't we talk that way all the time? Jesus' point then and today is this. There is an owner. There is an owner who has authority to make claims on everything that is his. And our ignorance, our forgetfulness, even our willful resistance of that Reality does not negate the fact that everything in the vineyard remains his property. So that's the tenants and the owner. Just the simple fact there is one. There is an owner who has authority over all these things. Let's look next at the tenants and the messengers. The tenants and the messengers. Look with me at verse 10 and 12 now. Here we read this, at the harvest time, he, that is the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Now, this part is a little bit easier for us to understand and get to, primarily because, as most of you would probably agree, if there's one thing that we hate more than knowing something we don't like, it's being reminded of something we don't like. That, that, that's, that's even usually worse. And if you need, if you have any doubt of this, all you need to do is just remember any scenario from your childhood where your parents gave you a chore that you didn't like, and then one of your siblings took it upon themselves to remind you of it. Doesn't that happen to you? Brother, sister, hey, don't forget. Mom and dad asked you to clean all the dog poop out of the backyard. Better get on that. Just rage comes from that, right? You already hated it, but now I'm really mad because you reminded me. 
Or there's something you're trying to do and you're struggling to figure it out and to get it. You're just failing miserable and someone who is getting it comes and points out how you're not doing it right. It's just like, Ugh. the reminder makes us even more upset. And if you just transfer that rage, that provocation in that scenario to this story that Jesus is describing here about the tenants in the vineyard, I think we can understand even a little bit more about their response, why they treated these messengers so terribly. I mean, because, think about it, they're being reminded of something they don't want to be reminded of. I don't want to hear about an owner. I don't want to hear about how I, he, he's, in, he's the one in charge of this. Don't, I don't want that. That's why they treat them so terribly. But we can't forget the reason why they were so provoked and enraged by the messengers. It's because we've got to remember that the messengers that were sent here, they're not some kind of Johnny know-it-alls who just want to nitpick and tattletale. That's not what's going on. These messengers were sent by the owner of the vineyard to collect what was lawfully his. That's all they're doing. I mean, this is where we get sometimes that, it's not from here, but we, where we imply that kind of saying, don't shoot the messenger. Hey, I'm, I'm just coming here to tell you what the owner said. And in the end, the reason for their rage is solely due to the fact, once again, the tenants of the vineyard have forgotten that they're tenants. They believe instead that they're the owners, which is undoubtedly one of the reasons the religious leaders they were so provoked by Jesus' cleansing of the temple. It wasn't because they were so concerned for God's house as much as it was that they were concerned for their house. This, this temple, this is ours. We're the ones who run this. That's really what they were concerned by. Now, we're always trying to figure out, again, what, what, what is Jesus getting at with these parables? What, what's he trying to describe with these different metaphors and symbols? And it's clear, I think, from the context as Jesus is speaking about these messengers, what he's talking about is the prophets of the Old Testament that God sent to his people. Those are the different messengers that God sent through the years to, to, to talk to, to bring his messages to the people. And it's true. There was something of an adversarial kind of love-hate relationship with these guys and the messages that they brought, primarily because God's people were always wandering away. They were always rebelling. They were so often unfaithful. And so the messages that these prophets would bring, although always including a call to repentance, the, the messages were often not positive. So given all that, it's not really surprising that, just as Jesus' parable points out, most of the prophets were badly treated, even killed. That, 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 that is the truth of what we read in the Old Testament. But, uh, think about that. Isn't that interesting then that Jesus, right before he tells this parable, would bring up John the Baptist? John the Baptist, who was widely regarded as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He had a very adversarial relationship with the religious leaders because he was constantly pointing out their hypocrisy. And if you know his story, he was eventually arrested by Herod and then beheaded. So you see, it didn't, didn't go well for the messengers that God sent. Think of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. He, he certainly agrees with Jesus, in his speech in Acts chapter 7, where after he kind of summarizes the entire history of Israel as he stands in defense for his life, he says to the council, putting him on trial, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? So think about this. Did you also notice the pattern that Jesus points out in this parable. Did you see a pattern there? The repeated entreaties of the owner to this abusive people. 
people who, legally speaking, are guilty basically of piracy and theft. He continues to send messengers to them. This, this, this is very telling about what Jesus wants to reveal in this parable about the character of God. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this passage, points out, in real life, he says, the owner would have surely taken strong action. He had the law on his side, and he would have dealt severely with the offenders. But Jesus is depicting a God who loves beyond measure and is compassionate where he has every right to be severe. That's the character of our God, a God who is compassionate where he has every right to be severe. That's absolutely in line with even what we read about God uh, two weeks ago, the message he gave to his people in Isaiah 65 when he says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who provoke me to my face. He says, All day long I'm still holding out my hands to those people. That's the character of our God that we see in the Bible here. But my fear as we talk through this is that we would leave this scene here in the first century and not think about, well, how does this matter for us today? It would be all too easy to kind of look at this parable and say, yeah, Jesus is giving them a convicting story about something they were doing wrong, and he wants to point that out. Imagining that if Jesus were standing here today, right now, that he wouldn't tell us, yeah, maybe a different story with different characters perhaps, but with an identical meaning. Just imagine that for a second. Just imagine with me for a moment. Let's say Jesus, standing here right now in the flesh, if he were to tell this exact same parable in our hearing today, he was just talking to us, who would the messengers be in your story? Who would they be in my story? Jesus is telling this parable to us. Who are the messengers? Who, who or what would you identify as the servants of God in your life sent to remind you that he is the owner? Sent to remind you that all that you call mine, you are merely a steward of. Maybe they would be a, a parent or a close friend who over the years maybe called out some harmful patterns in your life and challenged you to live differently maybe. Maybe it was a, a tragedy that happened in your life. That, that caused you to see as tightly as you cling to the possessions, those things you call mine, they can be taken from you at any moment. Who would the messengers be? Can you picture them in your mind? Now that you have them in your mind, ask yourself this question. How did I treat those messengers that God sent to me? How did I treat them? What was I open to them? Did I hear what they had to say, hear them out, open myself to what they were trying to tell me? Or did I abuse them? Did I treat them shamefully? Did I shut them up because I didn't want to hear what they had to say? It's so rare in our busy lives that we would stop and reflect on such, such things, but... As we think about how this would apply to us today, I just want to ask you, if you know, if you, if you can remember specifically in your life right now, you know that you treated some of the messengers that God sent you over the years poorly, and now maybe you're sitting on the better side of whatever it is that they were trying to help you through, I want to encourage you today, even this week, first of all, can you just thank God for those people? 
Thank God for those messengers that he sent you again and again in your life to bring you to the other side. And beyond that, I'd also encourage you, if you'd be willing, to even think about maybe a call or a letter to those people this week. Maybe they didn't do it perfectly, but just a call to that person and be like, I want you to know that I, I know that you were trying to help me. I didn't see it at the time, but now I see it. I just want to say thank you. I, I don't know. I don't know how that would be received. But my guess is that it would mean a great deal to those messengers to hear that from you. Think about doing that this week. All right, that's the tenants and the owner, the tenants and the messengers. Last thing I want us to look at quickly with you this morning is the tenants and the son. Tenants and the son, and we'll close with this. After repeated calls to repentance through his messengers, you'd think that, that, that by now the owner of the, the vineyard, he'd be at his limit, right? He'd be like, okay, that's it, time to send in soldiers or whatever. But look at how he responds instead. Look at verse 13 of our passage. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. I mean, again, this is just a staggering picture of the grace of God towards his rebellious creation. We, we can't even fathom a response like this to people who had resisted us so strongly, probably because we're not God. I mean, if I'm God in this scenario, I'd be lighting these people up like three messengers ago. It's mine. What do you mean you're not going to give it to me? Soldiers, here we go. That's how we'd respond, but, but this is not how God responds. And yet, still, this is the nature of the human heart. So set is the heart of these tenants on the illusion of ownership and control. Look at their response. Verse 14, 15, they say, this is the heir. They, they scheme together with each other. Hey, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. If you look at the second half of verse 15, Jesus kind of almost steps out of his story for a minute and asks them a question. He says, what, what, what do you think the owner of the vineyard will do now? Once again, there's guilty silence from his listeners. So Jesus answers his own question in verse 16. And he says, basically, the response of the owner is that he's going to destroy those tenants and give over stewardship of the vineyard to someone else. Which, keeping with this vineyard, the understanding of what that vineyard is, he means he's talking about the Gentiles. And the whole book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, is all about God doing that. About how he does hand over stewardship now to the Gentiles, begin to bring them into uh, the ones who are the stewards of his gifts. But what's interesting is it's that now, now the people, they hear Jesus say that, and I don't know why, but now they're shocked. Now they say, oh no, may this never be. Taking away things that are ours and giving it to others. No, may this Never be, but look at Jesus' response in verse 17 and 18. He looks them dead in the eyes, and he says this, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. A few things to point out just 
quickly here. The first part there, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118, which already by this time was clearly understood as a messianic psalm, a psalm pointing ahead to the Messiah that was coming, saying this is what you should look for, and you'll, you'll recognize him this way. And this is by quoting this, Jesus is clearly identifying himself as the Messiah. He's saying that stone that, that becomes the cornerstone, that, that's me. That's what he's saying by quoting that. Secondly, because we know when Jesus is telling this parable, we also know that he's like basically at one day. He's like a day, maybe two away from being arrested, taken outside the city and killed exactly like the son in the story. And here's what we need to consider. Jesus knows that that's what's going to happen. He knows it. It's, it's the whole reason he came. Which means, listen, in his parable when he talks about the tenants recognizing the son of the owner and killing him specifically because he's the son, Jesus is saying that for all their complaining, for all their denials, before, in spite of all their shutting him down, the religious leaders know that Jesus is from God. They know he's the son. They recognize him. It's why they won't answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist. It's why when Nicodemus comes secretly to Jesus in John 3, says straight up, we know you're from God. They knew. They did know. And what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders through this parable is that even though you know I'm the son, even though you recognize me, you're still going to kill me. And in the strangest of ironies, the son of Jesus' parable is now standing before them in the flesh, offering the tenants one last chance to repent. Here's what I want to leave us with this morning. Just a few chapters before our passage, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem in order to be rejected, to be handed over to the Romans and killed, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, filled with men and women that he loves. What does he say? Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing As we go through this teaching series on the parables of Jesus, you're going to see over and over and over again, the answer to whatever question it is that we're talking about is always, again and again, going to be how it is that we're oriented, how it is that we're related to Jesus. That's going to be the answer each time. How are you related to Jesus? Because here's the thing, yes, Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected here. Here the builders are the religious leaders. He's going to be rejected by him. They'll reject him. The builders will stumble over Jesus and eventually be crushed by him, just as he's quoted here. But that quote from Jesus in Psalm 118 is intentional. It's very intentional because although he is rejected by the builders and put to death, Jesus knows that's not the end of the story. He's going to be raised back to life again. 
He knows that as well. That's, that's the whole point of what we read uh, from Philippians 2, where Paul is talking about, uh, although Jesus would humble himself even to put be death on a cross, he will thus be exalted to the highest place, which means Jesus is going to become that honored foundational cornerstone for the church for all eternity. He knows that's what he's accomplishing in his death. And another one of the great ironies of this parable is this. As the wicked tenants are scheming about the son, when they recognize the son and they say, let's put him to death, you know what's the strangest of ironies about that? The tenants are right. They're right about what they said. Think about this. When the son of the owner is killed, his inheritance does become ours. Isn't that right? When the son of the owner is killed, his inheritance does become ours. That, that's, that was God's plan from the beginning. But only as we are related to Jesus, as we turn to him in repentance and not rejection. Only as we are related to him by faith in what his death has accomplished for us. Namely, the removal of the barrier of sin that keeps us from being related to him. So how are you related to Jesus? How are you related to him? It's one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself and that you should continue to ask yourself. How are you related to the son? Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you, are you willing to accept him and continue to accept him as the cornerstone on which you can build your life? Or will Jesus ever and always be the stone that you reject and stumble over? In John chapter 1, John writes this. He came, this is Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The children who receive the same inheritance as the Son. My prayer for each one of us today is that we would turn to him by faith, believing in what his death has accomplished for us and receiving by that faith, by that adopted faith that we have now, receiving the inheritance of the Son. Let's pray.